Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, welcome on today's episode of Partially Excited. We got Bill Phillips. He is the owner of Phillips Partnership Limited. He is an NLP. He is a coach, trainer, and he has created and discovered this amazing process called Teacher Base. Hello, welcome to the show, Bill. How are you doing today? Hi, Darren. Yeah, I'm feeling great. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. You're a baby boomer and you were born in the, the mid-1940s. What was London like growing up that time? Well, <laughs> I remember the old uh, London fog in particular. That's that's quite a strong memory for me. And I remember one particular day, it must have been around midday, maybe one o'clock in the afternoon, and I was trying to find my way home along the street that I lived in. And the only way I could do it, because the fog was so thick, if you extended your arm straight in front of you, you couldn't see your hand. So, and, uh, so I'm feeling my way along a wall, and the wall is on my right-hand side, a brick wall. I gradually become aware that there's a big, bright light in front of my face. And it turns out to be the headlight of a bus, which was on the pavement, creeping along, following, using the brick wall to uh, show his path. So I think he suddenly realised at the moment he was almost about to run me over. He was going very, very slowly. There was a a kid in front of the bus. So uh, uh, those times and kind of coughing and choking uh, was not an infrequent um, experience in my young childhood. And then, of course, uh, at that time in the late 1940s, early 50s, we were still rationed in the UK which meant that staple food was something we used to call buppy bread, which was uh, a slice of bread buttered and dropped face down into the sugar bowl. So it was uh, bread, butter and sugar, really. And uh, us kids used to jump on that as a way of filling ourselves up and keeping ourselves going. 
interesting times and uh, it's it's hard to imagine those although the way things are going right at the moment it's beginning to feel just a little bit like that again and and what did your parents do well, my parents have both died now um at the time my uh, my dad was um working as an electrician and that was probably when I was around seven to 12 years old, that kind of time. He worked uh, largely on uh, building exhibition stands and putting the electrics and the lighting in exhibition stands at the time. And I think he used to enjoy that. And he used to do that alongside his brother-in-law, uh, Pat. So the two of them used to get jobs together, lose jobs together, and they, they were almost like terrible twins. I suppose that time they would have been about 23, 24 years old, something like that. So, and my mum used to do all kinds of different jobs. So uh, one time she was cleaning hotel rooms, another time she was working in a bakery, another time she was working in a factory just around the corner. There was a big cross and black hole uh, canning factory. And I think she worked there several times on and off. And then there was another company just around the corner as well, which was a biscuit manufacturer, a big biscuit manufacturer called Pink Freens. And so she worked for, for Pink Freens as well for a number of years. So just like a typical mum, you know, doing lots of different jobs to, to make ends meet. Yeah, so that was in those old days anyway. So, but they're both, they're both passed on now because otherwise they will be about 90 something years old. That was, that was part of my young life, certainly. I think I remember my experiences at school were difficult. One big memory I have of young life is uh, fear of being frightened and being frightened much of the time. So when I used to go to school at uh, kind of ages, you know, four and five, it, it seemed stressful all the time. I, I seemed to be doing things wrong. I remember one of my first school teachers when I went up into the junior school, I think they called it junior school in those old primary school. I was five years old and this man who was in his 60s at that time, I remember his name, Bill Love. And apparently he taught my father in my father's school when he was young. And the very first thing this man said to me when he set eyes on me, and I'm sitting in the classroom, this little five-year-old boy, and he says, I taught your father. And I didn't think much of him, and I don't think much of you. And of course, you can imagine poking this finger and looking at me with a really red, fierce face, uh, kind of filled me with terror. And uh, that became kind of my general sense of what school was like and all about in those days. It was pretty unpleasant. So I had a number of episodes where, you know, I'd be terrorized by the head teacher or by this teacher or by someone else and end up, you know, escaping from school and running home and locking myself in the toilet for three hours. And uh, my parents used to get quite distressed about that. I remember one particular time I ran home in a panic. I can't remember what had happened, but something had terrified me. I locked myself in the toilet for, I think I must have been in about three or four hours. I was probably five, barely six years old at the time. The school became quite concerned that there'd been several episodes of me escaping and doing this. They recommended that I should be examined by um, an educational psychologist, I think it was. And uh, this person did their analysis of me, apparently, and told my parents with pleasure that uh, this young man has a very, very high IQ. I don't remember what it was now, 110 or 120, something like that. And that this may be that he's just super sensitive. And Because I think one of the other characteristics when I was a kid was I was, had a really brilliant imagination. I was very imaginative. The downside of it was that I used my imagination to scare myself to death. So 
maybe we'd be watching TV on a Saturday night and there'd be some sci-fi program called the Trollenberg Terror of a big blob of goo that slid down a Swiss mountain or something. As I'm watching this on this TV, which had a screen about six inches square and with this blurred black and white image, I would be so scared I'd be hiding behind the sofa and just poking my head up every now and again looking. And then, of course, with this amazing imagination I had, then I would spend the next three weeks scaring myself to death every time I went to bed. So in those days as well, going to bed was pretty scary for me because it, it usually meant scary dreams. And there was a lot in my childhood which was about fear and, uh, and worry and concern that I was going to be destroyed. So a very strange kind of childhood. And yet, of course, um, I suppose it's easy to get lost in memories like that and forget all the brilliant times as well. And there were certainly many, many good times. Um, I suppose one, one thing that was characteristic of me when I was small was uh, drawing and painting. I used to draw a lot. Uh, in fact, after my dad died, my sister sent me some of his uh, belongings, little knickknacks that she had in a, in a box. And one of them was um, a tiny piece of paper about four inches square. And my father, it had my father's handwriting on it. It said, Billy, five years old. And because uh, I was called Billy when I was little. Uh, and it was a drawing of the crucifixion. So it was a little hill and three crosses and people hanging on these crosses. And it actually was a rather skillful drawing. And when I saw this one, I was deeply touched that my sister said my dad had actually carried this folded up in his wallet ever since that day. So it was in his wallet when he died. And I was deeply touched by that. But also shocked that, I, as a five-year-old boy, might have thought of drawing crucifixion. And that kind of reminds me that when I was small, one big issue in my life was being made to go to Sunday school. And I say being made to go because that was kind of the tradition in those days. Um, but I didn't like to go to Sunday school. I didn't want to. I'd been to school all the week and I didn't like that. But in fact, Sunday school was much nicer because it was a nice, friendly, relaxed atmosphere. It was kind and supportive. And I remember I became fascinated by the stories of the Bible and Jesus and the miracles he would work. And it's funny, that idea of working miracles kind of stuck in my mind. Maybe I'll come back to that a little bit later. But I was deeply impressed by the idea that he could do such amazing things and heal people. So around about six years old, I decided, oh, maybe I'd like to become a clergyman. I'd like to be a priest when I grow up. And that idea got hold of me quite strongly. I, I won a prize at school, which was a, a beautiful little illustrated Bible or, or a book of Bible stories. And one of the things I used to love was the brilliantly coloured illustrations in there of Jesus and his disciples and all the happenings, that, the key stories of the, that part of the Bible. But then I noticed, I began to notice in the Sunday school that Although we're being told, be kind to one another, be good to your neighbour and tell the truth and be honest and so on. What I noticed was the people making us do this, when we actually went outside in the street, they were yelling at us, telling us off and being really not kind and not supportive at all. So that kind of got me to move and think, yeah, maybe I don't want to be a priest then. <laughs> so I gave up that idea at about six and a half years old. I think. So that was kind of some of my early formation, I guess. I think there was, actually there was one experience I had at school. There was this class with this horrible teacher who said he was, that he didn't think much of me. He said, we're going to listen to a radio broadcast and you're going to take notes. And I thought, I don't know what that means. And um, so he said, open your exercise books. So we all opened our books. And he said, right, I'm going to start the broadcast and you better make notes because I'm going to ask you questions about it. 
So, of course, you can imagine I absolutely shrunk in terror. I was sitting there just almost wetting myself with fear. I didn't know what taking notes meant. I started to write the first sentence and then realised by the time I'd written three or four words, the man had spoken another 30 or 40. Being afraid and thinking, well, I have to answer questions. I better listen. So I listened and every now and again, I would make a little single word or a note, hoping that that would help me remember. And at the end of the broadcast, it probably only lasted 10 minutes, the teacher said, OK, you stand up read me your notes and the child read the first line of the broadcast and then he made that one sit down and told someone else to do and they did the same first few words of the broadcast and then the third one stood up and said the first three words of the broadcast and then he said to me all right Phillips you stand up I said um I, I didn't really understand what making notes meant uh, so I only wrote and he said come out here I'm fed up with you and he leaned me over a desk, he pressed his hand on the back of my neck and beat my backside with a slipper. It seemed endlessly. And uh, one of the kind of impressions I had when I finally stood up and faced the class and all I could see were these blurred white blobs that were their faces. I think they were all sitting there in terror, hoping that it wouldn't be them as well. And I remember having made, made a decision at that moment was everyone else knew what to do except me. And it's really strange that as a, an adult quite advanced in years now. That pattern is still with me. It's very curious the way certain patterns from early childhood really stick with you. Everyone else knows except me. or knows what to do except me. What I used to find more or less from then on when certainly in my sort of early teens was I would work so hard and do my own work and really there was always this feeling that I had to work harder than everyone else because they didn't know what to do and I had to do this to keep up, so to speak. So uh, my, my formative years were really, yeah, I suppose in many ways, quite stressful. Uh, I'm sure there are many people listening to this who think, yeah, I've got my own version of that. And I think that's what makes us, you know, the adults that, that we are, people who are uncertain about their own value and their own worth and so on. And I guess, you know, that dealing with that and handling that, that challenge is probably largely what makes me who and what I am really. Uh, that makes me do this kind of work of helping other people, of learning, uh, passing on that learning. And it's curious to put it together, a kind of a track of events. So we, we pass forward to your, your teens and towards your finishing of, of education. Did you go and do a degree or university or, or what happened after that? Well, my, my family was really quite poor in terms of, you know, very low income. We were low income kind of working class. So my parents couldn't afford to send me to university. And at that particular time, so we're, we're talking about, what, 1959, that kind of time, there weren't the grants available for university students that came a little later. And so I really didn't get the opportunity to go to university at that time. So my early teenage really was, was finishing school and then getting a job. And in fact, there was <laughs> my very first job was um, working for a milk delivery company. I'd, uh, as a as a young boy, from about what ten years old, I guess, I uh, managed to get a Saturday job helping a milkman. So my mum used to get me up at six o'clock every Saturday morning, and I'd go and help this this man all day Saturday, finish about four o'clock, I guess. And you know, for a, a little ten, eleven, twelve year old boy, that was fairly strenuous work, but I used to love it. In fact, one of the nicest memories I have of that is, is going out into the street, sort of uh, 6.30, and hearing a blackbird on the top of the building singing its heart out. In the silence and the quietness of that early morning time, the bird's call would, would echo, and it, it's quite kind of 
Interesting. I, I came to a conclusion one day, how is it that blackbirds, when they sing in the morning, they always find a place where their voice will echo? Because I remember the echo of the, of the, the bird song uh, bouncing off the buildings. But it used to kind of lift my spirits somehow. That was one of those really powerful and, and nicer experiences. So I guess through my whole life, I've, I've tended to get up fairly early in the morning for being an early riser, even when I go to bed very late at night. That's something else I got from that. But my first job was uh, with a milk round, doing a, doing a milk round. And in fact, I took over the round that this man, who I think he'd moved on or he'd retired, I took over his round. It's quite a big round, apparently. But that job didn't last more than a few months. And then uh, I moved on to, uh, to other things. And I was playing in a band at the time as well. So I've been learning guitar, learned to play music. So I was a lead guitarist in a, in a small band. And really the music we played, there was a very famous uh, band, which I'm sure many people know, called The Shadows. And so I learned to play like Hank Marvey by listening to his records and copying him. And so we had a band that played Shadows music and we played it really very well. We had a funny experience with that. I think it was, when was it? 1963. We booked an audition with um, an agent, a theatrical agent of the great organisation, which is still a very famous theatrical agency. This man came, we hired the rehearsal rooms at Piccadilly Circus, the windmill rehearsal rooms, they were called, quite famous. We did this audition for this uh, agent and he said, you know, you're one of the very, very best semi-pro bands I've ever seen. You really are good. You look good. You synchronize beautifully. You've got musicality. You're a very good band. He said, the only thing is when I close my eyes, I hear the shadows and you really do sound like the shadows. And he said, you can't get away with that. They've already done it. They're already there. Now he said, look, there's this new band that's just made this record called The Beatles, right? Honestly, this close harmony singing they do, I really don't think it's going to get them anywhere. But if you can come up with something like that, just send me a tape. You don't have to go to all this expense and, uh, and I'll definitely get you work. The interesting thing was that was the point at which we as a band decided to disband. I suppose we realised that uh, that idea about the Beatles not getting anywhere probably didn't really uh, have legs. I wonder if he ever remembered saying that afterwards. Um, so that's part of my early kind of teenage focus. So where did it go after that, Bill? Because you've, you've got this huge amount of experience and, and knowledge and everything, but like, did it go into other jobs or other fields or did you eventually go to get some formal education over time? Or, Well, I, I guess the, the time when my formal education really started was in horticulture. And really, we're leaping forward about a decade, so my early 20s. I, I got to a place where I needed a job. I didn't have a job. I'd uh, met a girl on holiday in Spain with my parents. Uh, I was training at karate at the time. And in fact, the, the idea of getting involved in karate was very much to build my physical strength because I, I realised I'd spent most of my young life and my teens being uncomfortable and afraid, if you like, nervous. So building my physical strength and becoming strong was an issue. And I became deeply fascinated with karate at the time. But I got a job in the local park. I went over and said, look, do you have any jobs as a park keeper or something? And somebody said, well, we don't need park keepers, but we could do with some gardeners. Would you like to work as a gardener? So I said, yeah, that'd be great, thanks. And so I started that and became fascinated. There was a training course available to do basic gardening skills. So I asked the park manager if I could go on that and he was happy to send me. 
And then I realized that this could be so interesting because there was so much to learn about plants. So I became fascinated in knowing plants, being able to recognize them, being able to name them. And so I made an arrangement with the assistant manager in the park where during the day in my lunchtime, I'd go around and I'd cut little twigs and snippets of plants and bushes and flowers and I'd take them to him and I'd put a label on them and then he would write the name of the plant on the label and then I would go home and I would look them up and that way over a couple of years I, I really learned a huge amount about naming of plants and what they were called and where they were from and the histories and I kind of began to get the idea that it's something I could study for the rest of my life because I've never end this so much to know and so I became really quite excited by that. So I managed to get some more qualifications, became a supervisor in parks. So, and eventually I did a city and guilds, a series of city and guilds exams. And uh, one of my kind of proud moments was when I was awarded a city and guilds silver medal for being the premier student. And I can't remember which year it was, probably 76, 77, something like that, for uh, greenhouse work and, and growing and propagating plants. And so that was, that was a nice accolade. And just at that particular time, I'd uh, managed to get a job which took me to southern Spain. Uh, although the job advert that I answered said a houseplant specialist required for a nursery in southern Spain. And by this time, I was married to my Spanish girlfriend, and uh, she was from a town called Almeria on the bottom right-hand corner of the map. It just so happened, we didn't know this because it wasn't said in the advert, that this was the place in southern Spain where this job was. So I managed to get this job because I spoke pretty good Spanish by that time. Went to southern Spain and the minute I arrived, they said, um, right, how are you We're growing strawberries in polythene tunnels? And I said, I'm a tropical plants expert. I don't know about strawberries. And they said, well, we want to do a trial with strawberries. So I never did get to grow tropical plants in southern Spain. In fact, I ended up managing a nursery of 12 hectares of tomato plants. And uh, so I was there for about two years growing tomatoes, first as the assistant manager, then the manager of the nursery. And that was a very, very interesting time, very challenging time for me. But interesting running a commercial nursery or being the manager of a commercial nursery of, uh, of 12 hectares. We had 144,000 plants and each of these 12 greenhouses was about the size of a, a professional football pitch and I had 40 local staff who were, you know, helping us grow the crop. Very interesting experience and of course really strong experience as a manager and as a leader uh, and making things work in, for me, was a foreign environment. Very interesting but, you know, a great part of my formation as a manager and as a leader and, uh, and eventually as a, a consultant and a coach. Those were interesting times. What was challenging about this? It was challenging because I wasn't an expert in tomatoes. So most of what I did, I, I worked as the assistant manager for one year. So my boss was an English grower, a very experienced English grower. And then he went back to England and, that, and the, the partnership that the Spanish and the, the British companies had formed was now disbanded. So I was left there with the Spanish staff and the greenhouses, the, the owners saying, well, you just continue growing the crop. But then they decided to um, rent off four of the greenhouses, one block of the greenhouses, to a Dutch company who came over to grow cut flowers. So then they became very interested in the fact that growing cut flowers, they could earn an awful lot more money than by growing tomatoes. So they kind of started to lose interest in what I was doing and gain interest in maybe making the whole nursery to cut flowers. So that was the time at which I decided my, my role there was coming to an end. Uh, and I, I went back to the UK and took my wife and two small children at the time. 
uh, back to the UK. And uh, my first job was in a, a local park just as a way. Of course, now I was working with people who really weren't skilled. They were just workers and they were nice lads. I was in charge of a team. But the park manager in this particular place really didn't want me having any ambitions. And so I thought, no, that's not working for me either. A local friend of mine got me a job in a security company doing night security. So what I ended up doing was, was doing a security job seven nights a week. Uh, and then I would come home and have an hour's sleep and then go out and do people's gardens. So I became a gardener, a freelance gardener, uh, looking after gardens and then gradually moved into landscaping and designing gardens. And I was pretty good at that for a number of years. But then that started to grow and get a bit big and I would have meant to have investment and buy a truck and have a yard. And I didn't really have the resources or the courage to do that at the time. So uh, that was that facilitated another move. So I probably did that for about five or six years. I, I left that and went to do a job as a, an assistant trainer an assistant instructor in a horticulture training centre. So I was an assistant instructor. I was trained as an instructor. This was 1981 now we're talking about. I was trained as an instructor in horticulture. Worked with this other chap in this. The, the training centre that we were running was uh, really training parks and cemeteries workers for seven local authorities in London. So they'd joined together in what they called a group training scheme. And we were responsible for organising, designing and doing the training. And there was a kind of a national curriculum of training for parks and cemetery workers in those days. But uh, I started writing articles critiquing this system, which was a bit too rigid because most of my bosses, the managers of these parks department, were, departments rather, were saying, look, we don't want you teaching that stuff. We've got these problems. And so I started to talk to them and say, what do you want me to teach? I started writing an article saying, you know, uh, we horticulture trainers really should be paying attention to our customers, talking to them, finding out what they need and serving those needs and not necessarily following a theoretical national curriculum for, for parks and cemetery workers. And uh, those one or two articles that I released at that time were fairly popular and, and gained lots of recognition. And so I realised I was beginning to kind of make a name in the training world. And that was something which kind of echoed with things that people used to say to me when I was quite young, which you should be a teacher, you know, you're really good at explaining things. And I used to think, oh, I couldn't bear to be a teacher, it'd drive me crazy. But now I was beginning to realise, yeah, I was pretty good at explaining things and I could learn things much more deeply and thoroughly than most other people and pass on that information. I became very, very interested. So I spent kind of five years working as a trainer in horticulture, doing a diploma in training, training management, I'm really beginning to learn about leadership and management on uh, on a fairly kind of big scale. Um, that led on to a job at uh, Manchester Airport. Um, it was interesting, my marriage had broken up by this time. I was looking around. There was a job advertised at Manchester Airport for a training, a senior training officer, I think it was. And a friend of mine sent me this advert because she'd seen it. She said, Bill, here's your job. And so I applied for it and I actually managed to get it, which was uh, thrilling and exciting. And it was also interesting that I'd uh, met a woman from that part of the world from around Rochdale, she lived, and fallen in love with her. And so having a job which enabled me to go and live in that part of the country was uh, rather exciting. So I moved to Manchester Airport and, uh, and did, I think, about five, six years there. 
And that was a really very interesting time at Manchester Airport because they they were a local authority-owned airport at the time. So their owners were all the nine local authorities around Manchester, including Manchester. But they were becoming they were becoming a PLC. They were making the move from being local authority-owned to to being floated on the stock exchange. When I was invited to go and meet the board, the executive board and the chief executive, and they said, look, we're really pleased to have our own training officer. You're the very first man. We're looking forward to seeing what training courses you're going to be doing for us, especially with our supervisory people. And I said, well, I'm, you know, thank you for inviting me. I'm thrilled. How do you see me being involved in your business planning? Because it seems to me over the next few months with the move to becoming a PLC, there's going to be an awful lot to learn. And how can I help you and the management of the company do that and they kind of looked slightly stunned and thought are you joking uh, you're a training officer what would you have to do with business plan so I said no it's just simply the learning itself I don't know I'm no expert in business planning but I am an expert in learning and it seems to me if I can help you learn what you need to learn and identify it that could be really useful and in fact someone saw that as quite a sensible and useful idea and they ended up um, talking to people at Manchester University and Manchester Business School and getting the top team some help with uh, learning how to do business planning because these people had never done that before. And it was interesting, you know, four years later, they had a very, very sophisticated way of doing business business planning. And uh, in those days, Manchester Airport was just one company. It's now the Manchester Airport Group. And I like to think that the influence I had on the, the strategic thinking of the organisation had something to do with that. And in fact, it was while I was at Manchester Airport that I had an opportunity to do a master's degree and that was just about the same time as I became introduced to uh, neuro-linguistic programming and the connection was a very interesting one because I'd taken some training in 1986 on a new method for helping teams to operate effectively it was called team management systems TMS and uh, I'd been trained in how to use this and basically it was a questionnaire which helps people identify what's their tendency uh, what are their work preferences and how do they prefer to operate in their job and how does this affect them when they're a member of a team um, as leaders as managers as colleagues and so on and so I became very skillful in working with teams this time the early 1980s was actually a time when Teamwork was beginning to be studied seriously. Before that, understanding of how teams worked and group dynamics was really quite limited in the world. There were many researchers doing this kind of research based on famous people working in the USA, for example, in leadership and organization and so on. And so I didn't realize it at the time, but I was in on the early days of research into team development and team working. And so much of what I was exploring and reading about was actually adding to that experience of how people in teams work. So one of the fortunate things I was given the opportunity to do was to be trained in group dynamics. I did a training of something called action learning. And so I was trained as a, an action learning set advisor. An action learning group is a group of leaders or managers who all have different jobs and they come together with the idea of discussing their problems with one another. And it, it was almost really the early days of a kind of team coaching process where the team coached the problem holder. And my job as a facilitator was to watch the dynamics and help the team coach their colleague. And then each time they met, one of the people would be the subject and they would be airing their issue or their problem. And so I learned in the very early days of the train, I'm talking about 83, 84 uh, kind of time. Yeah, about that kind of time was that I was learning how to study group dynamics, how to observe people in motion 
been doing their work and that set of skills really has stayed with me and grown and has been a key part of my skill set and my development ever since. So I'm, I'm very skilled at working with groups, even with very, very big groups, and watching all the little signals and signs and managing discussion. You know, I'm, I'm a very competent facilitator now. Because, so that was a precious experience for me at the time. With someone that lacked fear at a young age and then tried to lack courage through becoming managing people and leadership, do you get a chance to uh, challenge those things in you? Well, yeah, because, I mean, one, one of the things I learned early on in a supervisory position, in fact, come think of it, I had a, a manager, one of the park managers that I went to work at, he was a man called Bill Gray, and I'll remember him forever because my first day in this park, I was going to be a supervisor in this park in North London. He took me round the park and introduced me to every single person that worked there, which was a team of about 15, I think. And to every person or every group of people, he said, this is Bill, he's your new supervisor. I want you to understand that if Bill asks you to do something, he's doing it on my behalf. So I want you to operate with Bill the same as you would operate with an instruction from me. So he was establishing my authority with those people and doing it in a very friendly, gentle way. The one thing he then said to me afterwards was, Bill, there's going to be times when something will happen and you need to make a decision and it might be a difficult decision and I might not be around for you to refer to. If that happens, when that happens, I want you to take a decision and if you get it wrong, I will back you 100% so long as you don't make the same mistake twice. But being a manager, being a leader requires that you make decisions sometimes and sometimes they're hard ones. Are you with me on that? So I said, absolutely. And I really appreciated that because he was telling me what to do. What was funny was, you know, every now and again, something would happen where Bill had taken a decision and things hadn't worked out quite well. And he'd, say, he'd look at me sideways like, and he'd say, you cocked that up, didn't you, Bill? So I'd say, yep, I reckon I did. So if it were to happen again, what are you going to do about it? And that way he would challenge me to say, to review what had happened and think, what are you going to do next then if it happens all over again? So there was always a plan, uh, if you like. He was making sure that I learned from my mistakes. Of course, I would naturally pass that on to the people that reported to me in their groups as well, in my teams. And again, that's, that's something which enabled me to understand the dynamics of working with, with uh, people in teams. Again, you know, it served my skill as a, as a coach and a trainer and a, uh, and a people helper, if you like. Um, so those are precious experiences. And of course, I was applying that at Manchester Airport and in my kind of observations and thinking about how to help other people operate effectively together. So here I was then becoming quite expert at working with groups of people and teams, quite expert at helping them understand themselves as well. And one of the authors of this, this questionnaire, this system called Team Management Systems, a man called Dick McCann did a study and he wrote a book in 1988, he published it, called How to Influence Others at Work. Really, this was a study of how when you know what people's preferences are in this team management system, they're going to react in certain ways. And so you can learn how to communicate with them in ways to influence them really powerfully. And he came over to England because he was from Australia, came over to England and ran um, a three-day trainer's training for his method that, that he'd done. And I was one of the people in this, this group. I think there were about 30 of us in the group. 
After the course, I was so fascinated by this because it explained so much. In fact, I had a funny metaphor for it. I said, it's, it's almost like over the years, I've been observing people behaving in certain ways and I'll be puzzled by these strange behaviors or these strange quirks in people, but not really have an idea or a sense of what was going on. All I knew was there was something weird about that. And it was as if each one of these experiences over the years had been a piece of a jigsaw puzzle that I was dropping into a, a long cylindrical bag about 15 inches deep and about five inches in diameter, I suppose. This was the image I had in my mind's eye. It was like a black velvet drawstring bag. And I was dropping all these bits of jigsaw puzzle in the bag. And then all of a sudden, this course that Dick McCann led us through inverted the bag for me and all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle fell out with the completed into the completed puzzle as if they all fell into place and I thought yes that's what's going on and so this is my first introduction to neurolinguistic programming or NLP um, because I immediately looked at Dick's bibliography in his book I think there were 17 or 18 books listed in this bibliography I went out and bought all of them and read every single one cover to cover and started applying this new learning in my work at Manchester Airport and it totally shifted the effects I was getting it totally shifted the way that people agreed with me much more readily and much more easily it shifted the way I explained my thinking and could communicate with people because it was all about face-to-face -face communication and of course adding that to my skills observing group behavior and unconscious behavior it's all fitted perfectly and so I started to have an influence at Manchester Airport which you know I started to really help them shift into a more strategic way of uh, thinking and business planning and I like to think that I had a quite a strong effect on the development of those skills and that tendency at Manchester Airport. So they were really, by the time I left in 1991, they were becoming quite skillful and sophisticated at business planning. Their business plan, when I'd first seen it, when they started this shift to PLC, had been an 81-page document. This is what we did last year. Well, it was hardly a plan. It was a retrospective review. So very interesting development there. And so I became introduced to NLP, 1988, and then started to work with it furiously straight away. And the following year, about yeah, just over a year later, Dick McCann came back to the UK to do a two-day certification program. So really what he'd intended was that in that year, we all practiced the material we'd learned and become really good at it and used his model. And then he was going to kind of give us some extra training and give us a certificate saying, yeah, you're competent to teach this model. And in fact, out of all the 30 people on the course, I was the only single person who had done what I'd done and studied it furiously and, and worked with it uh, enthusiastically, really. And so now I was, I was really becoming quite skilled at communicating and connecting with people and being fairly influential in the way that I forward ideas and so on. So it was an exciting time. And um, from Manchester Airport, I then went to work for a consulting company and became a consultant. And so I would then be sent out to organisations all over the world because they, they wanted, when they were recruiting me, they were looking for consultants who could also speak Spanish and or French. Uh, and I was already a fluent Spanish speaker by then. So I was hired by them and uh, ended up doing work in South America and several places uh, around the world but that was where I learned how to be a consultant and so I spent six years with them becoming a, a management consultant but applying all of the skills and of course at the same time in my own time I was continuing to develop my NLP skills so I took a, an NLP practitioner training in 1991 I think it was in yeah, 91 
completed my master's degree just before I left Manchester Airport. So I had a Master of Philosophy degree uh, through research I did at the airport company, which was responsible partly for the, the learning and development of the, uh, the senior team. And moved out into consulting, doing all kinds of projects involving consulting work, involving training, training design, uh, involving coaching because in those early days as well while I was still at Manchester Airport uh, people were coming to me saying I don't want to be an airport hand all my life is there any way you could help me become a supervisor or a manager and so I would I had two or three people that I was giving ideas and advice to about how they might go and study something or how they might talk to somebody and find their way and of course what I didn't think about at the time was what I was doing was coaching and again, the term coaching in business had not been invented yet. Uh, so coaching really started being applied formally to business in the early 90s. So we're talking about the mid-1980s. And in fact, it was during the coaching of one of these individuals that I stumbled across a way of thinking that I eventually called future basing. And the way it happened was I'd, I'd attended um, a training course with the Dale Carnegie Organization this was like one evening a week for eight weeks, I think. So it's like eight modules. And on module number five, we were required to create for ourselves a three-year personal development plan. So we had a series of forms to fill in which said, where do you want to be in three years' time? Where do you want to be in two years' time? Where will you have to be in one year's time? And what will you have to do for the next three months in order to start that process? And I couldn't do it. I could not do this process at all. I couldn't get my head around it. So we were supposed to prepare this development plan that week and then stand up for two minutes and present to the room what we came up with and the following week I just wasn't ready for that so it seemed quite ironic that here I am the training manager at Manchester Airport and yet I'd never done a personal development plan before and when I was faced with doing it found it really hard so in the end in fact after the course had finished I ended up writing a load of nonsense on this form just to complete it and I wrote things like I have a master's degree now. Well, at the time I wrote it, that wasn't possible because you couldn't go on a master's program without having a first degree. Since I didn't have a first degree, that wasn't going to happen. So acquainted or friendly with people whose books I read was another thing I remember writing. I was explaining this to this young man who was being coached by me, and I said, look, I think now's a good time for you to think about where do you want to be in a year's time. I said, and there's a method that I learned on this training course and I said I want to say to you this didn't actually work for me I said but I know it will work for you because you're you're much more structured and linear in the way that you think and I think this method lends itself to that so I'm showing him the documents that I'd filled in as I'm looking over his shoulder I'm realizing everything I'd written down there was actually happening I was on a master's degree course I was acquainted with people whose books I read in fact, I was becoming quite good friends with a couple of them. I was becoming very well known in my industry because of the role I held and so on. And I thought, how can that be? Because when I wrote that, this couldn't happen. And now it's happening. And so that set a train of thought, which led me to create a replica of this way of thinking, if you like, which led to results which, at the time when I dreamed them up, couldn't happen. One of the interesting characteristics, and I only noticed this about a year later, when I was looking back at these documents again, I realized in that document, I'd written everything that was in the future in the present tense, as if it were already real. So I do have a master's degree. I am friends with, and I thought, I hadn't noticed myself doing that at the time I wrote it, because the form said, where do you want to be? Where will you be? It didn't say, where are you? 
And so I was puzzled as to how I came to do that. Using my NLP skills, I would say my unconscious directed me to do that. But nevertheless, that was a discovery that I'd written everything in the present tense. So I thought, I wonder if that's something about what made it work. And I started to conjecture about looking back from this ideal outcome, this outcome that I'd originally thought was impossible, noticing what the things I'd done that seemed like a good idea at the time, but I hadn't connected with this vision, so to speak, that had led me here. And in fact, one of the things that had led me to become friends with someone whose books I read was that um, there was an event published, um, a one-day event said, come and meet the experts or something. And one of these experts was a man called Alan Mumford. And Alan Mumford was very well known in those days as a leadership consultant and a coach, well, becoming known as a coach, well, that was a new term. He was also very famous for a learning styles questionnaire. It was called Honey and Mumford's Learning Styles Questionnaire. And there were a number of things about this learning styles question there, which I disagreed with. And here was an opportunity to meet Alan Mumford and to really be able to cross-examine him and say, look, I disagree with that. How does that work out? So I met Alan Mumford, whose books I did read in those days, and he published some really important books. So that was an example of how, just by chance, I went on this one-day thing. And the other thing was, one of Alan Mumford's colleagues was a man called Roger Bennett. And I was having a chat with him in a coffee break. And I said to him, Roger, I seem to remember in the trade journal that there's a course offered for a Master of Philosophy degree by research. And I'm sure it was your business school that was offering it. He said, that's right, I'm the course director. And I said, well, you're just the very man I want to speak to because I think I will qualify to come on this course. And so less than a year later, I was actually on this master's degree program being led by Roger Bennett and being trained partly by Alan Mumford and using action learning as a basis for this form of study, which, of course, I was already expert in. And so, so many things dropped into place uh, somehow that I thought, this can't be coincidence. There must be something in the way that I've gone about thinking this through. And that's really what led me to create the technique that I now call Future Base, which is a way of looking towards the future that you want to have, writing it down as if it's already true and doing that in a very organised and structured way. And so that was the birth of Future Basing back in 1988. And uh, I tested the idea about a year later. I've been invited by the management team of a local further education college in Manchester to do some teamwork with them because uh, there was a new act created by the government called the Education Reform Act. And one of the, uh, the edicts in this act was that all colleges around the country would produce a three-year development plan and they had to produce this plan and submit it to the government and they would all operate from this plan. So this group needed help with doing this because the vice principal who invited me to talk to him about it said, look, we have a group of 11 heads of department, all of whom are meant to help us run this college, but all of whom refused to be in the room together because professional jealousies and, and all kinds of stuff. So we need your help in bringing them together and getting them to cooperate. And so my first thought was, well, tell you what, let's not suggest we're going to build them as a team then because you know what they're going to say. And so we offered them this idea. We said, you're being tasked to create a three-year development plan for this college. What would it be like if you could come for a day and find a really brilliant way of imagining you've already created this plan and to build it from the inside out? And there's a very interesting new method that you could use to do this. And it was amazing. They all turned up. What was really extraordinary, and this is really what fixed future basing in my mind as something significant, was at the end of that day, after pretending to be friends and pretending to have done a really brilliant job over three years, they were actually so fired up. They really were. 
becoming friends. And they were going out like almost like Tweedledum and Tweedledee in pairs saying, what have you done to us today, Bill? We've just totally changed the way we feel. And we're all going down to the pub. Will you come with us? We're going to have a drink and to celebrate what a nice day we've had. And I thought there's something very, very interesting going on here. How can future basing this technique of imagining you're already in the future be so powerful to shift these people like this all in one go and that was really the, the spark that led me to develop it further so when i went to this uh, and, and worked for this consulting company one of the early things i did was tell my colleagues about this method i developed and they fell in love with it and so we started training everyone in the all the other consultants in the various offices that we had around the country over in northern ireland so future basing became established um, in those days so i started to write articles about it to explain it that's really the origins of, of future basing. Tell us about how you got to apply this method to the Red Cross. Oh, yes. Well, because I'd been trained by Dick McCann in how to influence others at work, the company that he owned, which had a, an office in the UK, New York, was running a program of training people in how to do this. And Dick McCann would come over at least once a year to run this program. And this particular year, he was unable to get across from Australia. So he said to the managing director of the company at the time, look, why don't you ask Bill Phillips who he'll do it? Because he's one person I know could do it as well as I could. And I really trust him to do that. So they invited me to do that. Uh, two of the people that were attending this, this training course were the senior trainers in the International Red Cross in Geneva. And Dick McCann had become very interested in my future basin method. In fact, he made it possible for me to publish the first article on it in those days. Because Dick was interested in it and wanted to encourage me, I'd actually mentioned it in this training course. One of the Red Cross people, she said to me, listen, um, Bill, we have something happening in the Red Cross in about a month's time. And I'm just wondering, your method could be really, really powerful. And I think it would be ideal for that. Would you be prepared to do some pro bono work for us? So I said, yeah, sure. Um, that's, that's, that would be a privilege. I was invited across to Geneva. I met undersecretaries. There were three undersecretaries. There was a secretary general and three in the executive team. And then there were several heads of departments and so on. What I did was I spent Friday and Saturday interviewing several of these people saying, what is actually going to be happening on Sunday? And they said, well, we're all coming together. There are about 50 people from around the world, uh, many of them presidents of national societies or chief executives, um, secretary general and secretaries general from their national societies in their countries. And they're coming together to create a vision for the worldwide Red Cross movement. This is a vision for where we are at at the end of 2010, because we need to develop what we call our 10-year strategic plan. We call it Strategy 2010. And this was in 97. So I went across and had these interviews. And the one person I'd not met yet was the Secretary General, the boss himself. So I met him late on Sunday night, about 7 o'clock. We were due to start at just after seven. So he met me as big man, you know, shook my hand and said, okay, so tell me, uh, Bill, I don't know who you are, I don't know where you're from, but what are you going to do for us? So I said, well, here's the plan. And he said, no, 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 I don't want a bloody training course. I, I want to have a conversation with these people to come to an idea of, I said, I, I do understand that very well. I said, and what I want to say to you is 50 people can't have a conversation unless it's managed in some way. But one of the best ways to start a managed conversation is to have a structure. So what I'm proposing to you is a structure. It's a structured way of thinking. And I know it can work with a big group of people. So he said, OK, explain your structure. And he kept interrupting me. And I said, look, you won't let me finish a sentence. This is your show. 
you're the boss, I'm here, I'm happy to offer my services, but it's your show. Why don't we, because we have five minutes before we're due to begin. If you have doubts, I'm sorry about that. I want to allay those fears if I can, but why don't we just get started? And if there's anything I do or say that you're not happy with, you can either say to me, Bill, stop that. I want you to change it. Or you can throw me out. What do you think? He said, okay, I will. And we shook hands on that and started the process. We had 50 people in the room imagining what the world would be like with the Red Cross doing a fabulous job at the end of the year 2010. And we used Future Base into structure and organize that thinking. And it worked so very, very well that at the end of that, a couple of days, I had to go. They had one more day together. I had to leave to go back to the contract in the UK. Somebody said to me, look, there's been an advisory commission meeting every year for about 15 years, trying to create an agreement and failing every single time. Just watching you do this with this group of people, I'm absolutely certain it will work for them. Are you free to come over and do that? And it happens to be on my birthday, the 2nd of June in that year. So I went across to Montreux. There were a group of 30 people. Again, a mixture of presidents and chief executives of national societies or other very senior people. And there were two groups in this room, really. One group was the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC, which is the original Red Cross organization. Swiss organization. The other group of people were from the Federation of all the national societies around the world. And so the International Federation of the Red Cross is a different outfit from the International Committee of the Red Cross. They're two different organizations which cooperate together. And they were trying to create an agreement between them about what happens when there's a war going on. The International Committee of the Red Cross are there monitoring the war infections are following Geneva Conventions and protecting prisoners of war and so on. Uh, and let's suppose there's a flood or an earthquake or a tsunami. Um, who's in charge? Because normally in those disastrous situations, it's the federation of societies that get resources and get money together and rush out to the emergency and set up treatment uh, programs and so on. When there's a war going on, that's not that simple. So who's in charge? So they were trying to create an agreement about who would lead in those multiple disaster situations. With my facilitation of just one night and one day, they managed to create that agreement. In fact, what they were shocked about was everything I'd written as their vision, the agreement itself. So they created the agreement by creating a vision for an agreement, so to speak. And that was ratified in Seville that year. And so the International Red Cross has a document or a protocol, which is called the Seville Agreement, which is their system of leadership, organizing leadership in those multiple disaster situations. I'm very proud of that because that's quite unique. It's one of the most important protocols that is, continues to be updated and is still followed and operated. It's one of their major operating systems in the International Red Cross. So that's how Future Basing got involved. What was nice about that, of course, was that created such a big impression that I ended up having about five years worth of follow-up projects with working in many, many teams. So I've worked with teams and groups, outfits, some of them in the Red Cross for over a number of years, uh, in many different countries and sometimes in Spanish as well. So again, I was building my expertise with working with teams over all those times and facilitation of large group discussions. And of course, as the coaching world had developed and become more organized, I also started training coaches or training 
managers and team leaders as coaches in the early 1990s when I was working in this consulting company. And so really that's where my kit bag started to expand and, and, uh, and grow uh, with all these multiple and multinational experiences. So up till now I've worked in I think 17 or 18 countries and uh, coached people in most of those. Many, many cultures, many languages and many challenges. It continues to be that way and I love it. That's a kind of rambling uh, <laughs> account of how I scrambled my way to it. It shows you how powerful this future basing is, the fact that it took a day and, and a night for this to happen. Is that when happens quite regularly with when you start introducing this to some of the, the clients you worked with in the past and, and, and at the moment? Well, yeah, because I mean, future basing really, when I look back on most of the work I've done, future basing has filtered into much of that work because it's such a useful pattern of thinking. So I remember one piece of work, I was, I was asked to work with a, a team working for BA Systems. This team had just had I think their second meeting and I was asked Bill could you come and help us cohere this team because this team needs to gel and come together very quickly because the project they have is very challenging and we know that you have the kind of skill that could help us do that. I met this team of people there were about 17 of them I think in this team they just finished their second meeting I knew some of the people because I'd worked with them in various training programs, especially when I was training coaches. Some of them had been on those programs. So I had a level of familiarity with people. And over dinner that night, chatting informally, I really got a measure because I was actually working already. I wasn't just chatting after dinner. A measure of where they were up to in terms of the way a group develops. And so I, I started to plan my strategy for the following day by these kind of informal conversations. I chose to do something which uh, I do when I'm working with conflict resolution that's an area that, I'm, that I have a method for which is very powerful and so I work with this group of people I ask them to divide in their various factions if you like because many of them were saying you know the trouble with Wayne is he's a great bloke he really knows his stuff but he, he will agree to something in the team and then he goes off and does his own thing and so and so she just denies everything and thinks she's in charge she's the only one with good ideas so there were these things going on and I'm thinking hmm okay so I got them to break up into their various groups then what they their job was to say to all the others in the room, this is what we need from you to be able to operate effectively here. The listeners were only allowed to listen. They weren't allowed to explain, deny, apologize, or, or excuse themselves. They could just ask questions for clarification. And so in the end, each group had the opportunity to say, this is what I need from all of you. And of course, these people would repeat back to them until they got it right about what they'd asked for. And this is a very powerful way of bringing people together and helping them really hear one. And then straight after that, I did a future-basing process and said, look, this project finishes in July. We're in April now, something like that. Let's go just beyond the end of July. And what you're looking at is a project that's really worked. What's the day? You know, what have you been successful at in the creation and the completion of this project? So they fixed on a date and they started to generate a number of categories in which they've been successful. And they said, well, all I want you to do now is in each of these categories, I'm going to give you a set of instructions and I want you to follow those instructions and populate each of those categories with your specific achievements on this project. And what was nice was, I mean, there were other things that went on, but fundamentally they, they met the project requirements before, in fact, uh, a few days before they weren't really due and well within their budget and they were very happy with that. And so uh, as a result, the, the Saudi Arabian Air Force brought 40 Eurofighter and this was a commercial team whose job it was to get that contract signed. It's a fairly important project for VA systems and for employment in North America. There was another one actually with the Red Cross, which was a conflict situation. 
there were two teams in the International Federation and these two teams were the disaster relief health teams and the health development capacity building team, which was responsible for all the national societies. When there's a disaster like an earthquake or a flood or something like that, disaster relief team would rush out and set things up and they would set up cholera stations and basically deal with the, the emergency situation until it could be brought uh, to a level of stability. And then the National Society and the, those around would then gradually take over responsibility and, and the two teams were meant to cooperate. For a number of years they'd been at war with one another and not cooperating and this was not only becoming a problem in real on the ground situations but it was becoming embarrassing the Secretary General of the, the Federation and he wanted this conflict resolved so someone said Bill Phillips, he's the man, which I was very flattered by. And I went across and somebody said to me, I heard you're going to be working with the health teams. Can I give you a word of advice? If you value your reputation, don't do it because I'm sorry, they're so entrenched. That's not going to happen. So I said, well, thank you for that. I really appreciate that. Um, unfortunately, I've already said yes, so I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I have a method. I think it might work. They locked us up in a hotel. In fact, in deep snow, it got buried in deep snow in the mountains with a fabulous view of, of Mont Blanc, the opposite side of the, the country. And we were there for three days, locked in. We couldn't get out, even if we wanted to. And we had to come out with a result. And uh, on the final day, we did a future basing, where I said, look, I want you all to imagine that it's six months' time, and all of what we were here for is behind you now. And things are operating absolutely stunningly well. So come on, let's come up with a date. We came up with a date created these categories and then they worked to fill in the of course all the time up until then they they were saying when are we going to be in the room together and have the argument and i said yeah yeah we'll get to that but let's do this first and so we were doing a number of these maneuvers which i use to gradually get people to really listen to one another and hear what the others are saying and so by the time we came to doing a future basin they were primed and ready and their future basin was so powerful they got so excited they couldn't wait to get back to the organization and announce you know this is the new face of the health teams and this is how we work together so skillfully and cooperatively from now on and uh, so that's a very pleasing result funny enough about nine months later they were disbanded and reformed into a new team which was one single team with one leader which is what they've been proposing right at the beginning when they were still at war. Each of them said, we just need one team, not two. So we don't need the others, you need our team. And of course the others said the same thing. It's a very interesting development, but it was future-based that helped those people get to there and get to that level of excitement about new ways to operate. That's how I know it's such a powerful process. Sounds like it is a very powerful process. We have the virus at the moment, the coronavirus, but is there any way that could future-based thinking could sit into, into this at the moment? Well, it, it will probably need to be with particular groups who are going to create something. So it, it might be a particular team that's responsible for something. It might be a particular department or grouping. At the moment, the challenge is that we can't really bring people together safely. And future-basing definitely works when people are all together in the room. It's most powerful in that way because you have the collective thinking, you have the energy and so on. But you know that there's there's a group of people here who are very, very interested in changing the landscape of homelessness. And for example, we're proposing doing a future-basing process to help us develop a vision for that project that could end homelessness in Ireland. And so quite recently, we were having a, a virtual meeting, mapping out what's the structure of future basing and how are we going to apply it to that. So that's one way it will, will be applied to developing that. With the coronavirus, the interesting thing is, of course, 
the, the big thing on everyone's mind is fear. There's fear that I might get infected or that my loved ones might become infected and then what? That's the very real fear for many people. And of course, all the arrangements that are being made to keep us safe, you know, isolation, staying indoors, keeping a distance from other people, is just feeding that fear and exaggerating it. And so, you know, my heart goes out to people that are struggling with that fear that what if I die or what something goes wrong and so on. What I would say is all the time that you're thinking about that, you're not dead, you're still here. And so what would it be like if you could imagine a few months time when this has passed and you're thinking, I've learned a lot from what I've gone through in the last months. Um, what I've learned is precious and it's going to be with me for the rest of my life. One thing I know is I know how to look after myself. I know how to calm my nerves. I know how to recognize when I'm worrying about something that hasn't even happened yet. So that's one way that people can begin to shift their thinking. Uh, another area, of course, is people who've lost their jobs or people whose businesses can't operate in this environment. And their mind starts going to, well, what if I can't pay my bills? What if my business fails? What if, what if, what if? And again, the number one thing that we need to do is to protect ourselves and stay well and stay stable. So that's very destabilizing that way of thinking. And so people can recognize, for example, that right now, I don't have full control over everything. I have control over some things. I have choices about some things. What can I choose? What can I do? And how can I keep myself thinking positively and thinking well? So many people have immediately, for example, started putting their work on social media, on platforms like Zoom and Skype and, and so on. And they're running webinars and doing talks and, and so on. And I think all of those things are valuable contributions to society. To help people use future basing, if people imagine the future that they want to have, but think about it as if it, they already have it. So you think of a specific end date. So you might say it's three months time, it's June the 14th or something like that. And then, so what am I successful? What am I happy about now? And you come up with a number of categories for that success. So it might be being healthy. It might be having enough money. It might be keeping my children safe, whatever, whatever those headings are. And then in each of those categories, you describe what specifically in this area have I achieved. And you write it as if it's already true. So you write it in present tense language and as if it's real so that when you read everything you've written what you've got is a, a picture of your ideal outcome as if it's already real and this has a very interesting effect on the unconscious it tunes it to noticing opportunities to get and so people could do that simply and that would be a very powerful way i do have a guide for that on my website and people could take a look at the website and they could purchase that guide. In fact, what I think I might do is allow people to get that guide for, for free for the next three months. So although it says on the, on the web page that it costs 23 euros, if anyone applies for that, sends me an email to say, I would like a copy, I will send them a copy and I won't charge for the next three months. And that way people could follow that guide and do their own future basing, future basing for their families as well. Bill, if someone met you on, on the street today and they said, Bill, if there's one piece of gem or advice that you could give me, what would it be? Well, it's certainly about protecting yourself. And it's certainly about, you know, the toughest challenge most of us have is to actually, we can look at other people and admire them. We could love other people and we could care for them. We can do things to help them. We can do things to please them and get enormous satisfaction out doing that. If we could learn to do all those things for ourselves as if we are another person, to be kind, to be thoughtful, to give ourselves presence, to really care about our own well-being and our own happiness, 
I would say that 99% of people actually find that almost impossible to do. Much of what I'm doing these days is helping people discover how to do that. So how to take care of yourself, how to love yourself. In fact, there, there's a little book which I've been telling a number of people about, and I think it's a superb book for, for motivating yourself and learning how to love yourself. And it's a book called Heart Talk, Heart Talk. And it's by a young American woman called Cleo Wade, W-A-D-E, Heart Talk by Cleo Wade. And this book has on each double page spread a theme or a, a topic, which is about caring for yourself, about feeling good. And what I do with this little book is each morning I, I put the, the bookmark in at a random place. And every morning, first thing when I wake up, I open the book at that page and read it and just absorb it. And then I put it in another page. And then when I go to bed at night, I open it and read it just before I go down and lie down to sleep. And I find that keeps me energized and positive. And even though, you know, despite the time has been very, very scary and unpredictable at the moment, I'm still here. I'm still healthy. I'm still well. I'm still eating in this right moment now. I can get worried about next week and next month, but I choose not to because I think, well, I'm, that's not even here yet. So stay in the present and be kind to yourself. That's, that's the advice, I guess. I want to say it's been a pleasure chatting with you and hearing your story, your knowledge and experience. And thank you so much. I'm delighted. Delighted, Aaron. Thank you for asking those very few questions you did that prompted such a, an outpouring. It's very nice to be able to speak about those things. And I hope it's valuable to people who are listening to this. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.